It's been a great afternoon. I went to see uh, Matt Vandegrift's installation at Willow Meadows uh, Baptist Church. I think some of you probably were members at Willow Meadows at one time, and it was good uh, to be there, and some of our other members were there. I was reminded that your investment in the lives of these young ministers pays dividends for the kingdom of God. That one who trained here and preached many, many Sunday nights for me is now preaching there, and God is using him, and they love him, and he them, and it is a a symbiotic relationship, much like uh, the one that I appreciate so much here. Well, on one of these uh, idolatrous weekends when we worship our play, I want to remember with you uh, a famous uh, football player, Tom Brady, quarterback for the New England Patriots, who a few years ago was at the top of his sport. At a very young age, he had won multiple Super Bowls. He was the envy of so many that season. He had won 15 in a row for the New England Patriots. He was having an MVP kind of season. And he had just uh, stopped dating an actress so that he could date a supermodel. From every uh, perspective in our world, it looked like everything was going right for him. And at this point, uh, he did an interview on 60 Minutes. Now, I didn't see the interview because, like you, I was in church on... Sunday night, but I read about it later, and, um, and this is uh, what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I know some people think, hey man, this is what it is. I, I reach my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, there must be something more than this. Something greater out there for me. This, this isn't, this, this can't be what it is all cracked up to be. And the interviewer was a bit surprised and said, well, what then is the answer? And Brady memorably said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. What if you reach the top of the ladder that you're climbing and discover it is leaning against the wrong building? What then? The writer of Ecclesiastes surely felt that way when he wrote this book. Remember, we left off last time with the book of Proverbs. And I just want to say to you about these these wisdom books. We've looked at Job and Psalms and Proverbs But particularly in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, we get glimpses of what may be considered the greatest competitors for Christianity in our culture. On the one hand, the endless pursuit of intelligence, the sort of enlightenment ideal that says man is the measure of all things, and if I can just get enough wisdom and enough knowledge, then I can make my own way in this world. In this case, Ecclesiastes, which gives us a sort of front row seat to the emptiness of filling our lives with material goods. And two weeks from now, next, next Sunday night, we will ordain uh, Michael Melchiori to uh, the, the ministry of the diaconate. Uh, so I won't preach Song of Solomon that night. Michael, you can just breathe a sigh of relief. That's not what I'm talking about. I'll talk about deacons that night. But the next Sunday night. I'm going to teach Song of Solomon, and uh, I think we'll be in the big room. I'm not sure, but I'm thinking we will, and uh, I have some things that I need to say 
about that subject about which the church says, I think, too little in these days. But for all of Solomon's wisdom, his accumulation of possessions led to the winter of his discontent, which led to his spiritual demise. Again, open your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes. I want to read just the first verses and then... I'll reference several verses, so you just want to keep your Bible open tonight. And then at the end, uh, we'll pick up a few verses in chapter 12. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. How to evacuate our emptiness. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Aren't you glad you came tonight? (laughs) Listen to what he says. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, where they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new Under the sun, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already. Long ago, it was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, even those who are yet to come, will not be remembered by those who follow. Let's pray. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of the commentaries I heard about this week said, if you were trying to subdivide the book of Ecclesiastes, you might do it this way. Of course, course one would never try to preach the whole book of Ecclesiastes in one sermon. Well, here we are. The whole book, one sermon. So I need to be brief tonight and just simply say to you that the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't ever identify himself as Solomon. I know that that's our tradition, and I I really believe that Solomon wrote this book. But really, what the book tells us is that Kohelet, that's the Hebrew word, the teacher, some translations, do you have the ESV? I think it says the preacher. But the word itself, in its sort of ancient cultural context, is not so much about an evangelist, as we would think of it, or a pastor, but it's really more a word that speaks of a philosopher, a person who's sort of endlessly searching for the answers to it all, a person who never stops asking why, like a a two-year-old in a household, always wondering why, why, why. And this is the heart of the writer of Ecclesiastes It's a person who sort of tried all of life and says at the end in the smoky tones of Peggy Lee, is that all there is? Is that all there is in this world, all that I have tried? And 
And it's in, I think, the fact that this person speaks about wisdom and relationships with women and work and wealth that we begin to think that this son of David, as he is identified, could very well be Solomon. Now, the word son can really mean any descendant. So, in that sense, Jesus is a son of David. But even though some commentators look at this and say it really doesn't feel like something written in the time of Solomon, more recent scholarship is saying, well, but there are so many connecting points that surely it does tie back to the time of Solomon. What we know is that the writer of Ecclesiastes was a person who had tried all of the things that this world has to offer from his perspective. He had tried wealth. He had tried pleasure. He had tried uh, work. He had tried wisdom. And in all of these things, he found himself still feeling so incredibly empty. Like Tom Brady, the, the famous athlete, he, he could say and answer the question, what then is the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And it is a, an unusual piece of literature. And each, each phrase sort of reminds us that, that God is at work in this person's life, but this person has not yet found the answer to that. And there is a sort of chronicle of all the different things this person tries to find meaning. And finally, the word that summarizes the book of Ecclesiastes is this Hebrew word, hebel, which means vanity. Or the NIV says, meaningless. It's only in this book 35 times, he says. He says things that we think are good, meaningless. Things that we think are sort of neutral, meaningless, he says. Things that we clearly think are bad, he says, meaningless. For him, at the end of the day, there is this sort of spiritual burnout. He says, you name it, I've tried it, I found it meaningless. Everything, go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. Everything, he says, is meaningless. I love Mark Dever's comment on that, this pastor in Washington, D.C. He says, by everything, he seems to mean everything. Everything is meaningless. It comes down at the end of the book in chapter 12, verse 8. Everything is utterly meaningless. One pastor wrote a book on Ecclesiastes and he titled it, Been There, Done That, Now What? In our endless search for meaning in life, nothing in this world seems to satisfy. So can I ask you tonight, where has your search for meaning taken you? Solomon says, he confesses in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, I never said no to myself. And when I read that this week, I was convicted. I wondered, who tells you no? I mean, if you were king, if you were the greatest king of your day, if you had... Uh, hegemony, you had power and uh, authority over not only your people but other nations, who would be able to tell you no? I remember when we were young, my mother kept children. I guess four were not enough. And she kept children for other people. And one little boy we loved. We just fell in love with this little boy who stayed at our house. But whenever we told this little boy no, I mean, he was just a toddler. He would look it up, and, uh, up at us and he would say, you don't say me no. His grammar wasn't uh, clear, but his meaning was, you're not going to tell me no. And Solomon was like that. Nobody told Solomon no. Not even Solomon told Solomon no. And he had more money and more pleasure and more success. Can we just get this out in the open? He had, relative to his day 
and our day. He had more money, more pleasure, and more success than you and I may ever enjoy. And yet none of that satisfied the needs of his soul. And I'm just going to tell you tonight what my great concern is for us. In our endless pursuit, walking down the same road that Solomon did, some of us are never going to get enough money to, to, to believe that enough money is never enough. Some of us in our pursuit of pleasure and entertainment and enjoyment will never, ever quite get enough to realize what Solomon... Listen, Solomon went beyond us in all of that and he says it was not enough when it comes to wisdom and the pursuit of of understanding and proverbial sayings that will sort of give people an aha moment. We will never get as much wisdom as Solomon had in a worldly sense And yet we are still pursuing it thinking that's it. I have friends who are seekers. I remember a a friend in Austin who had on his card, his personal card, seeker of truth. And I said, so what have you found? He said, I haven't found it yet, but I'm still seeking. I said, what about Christianity? Yeah, I'm just a seeker. He was not a finder. He was just a seeker. And some of us would have to be honest tonight and say, I'm still looking, I'm still searching, and I think if I get a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, that somehow I'm going to be able to find the meaning of life. And my fear for us is we will not learn the lesson that Solomon learned. That enough in this world is never enough. And in fact, when we look at the things that our world thirsts for, we discover that they are like so much Salt water. What did the rock group sing? I can't, again, bad grammar, I apologize. I can't get no satisfaction. Solomon was like that. And we could be insatiable as well. Where is the meaning? And here's the question. Who can evacuate the emptiness in our souls? We could search for meaning like Solomon did in wisdom in verses 12 to 17 of Chapter 1, he basically says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. For him, under the sun, by the way, is a way of saying life outside of God. Because when he uses under the sun, he's not particularly including God in the equation. And he says, I've seen it all. It's so much chasing after the wind. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom. Remember, in 2 Kings 3.9, Solomon asked for wisdom. 2 Kings 4.29-34, just write it down. You can look it up. He got it. God answered his prayer. He was the smartest man in the room. Every room Solomon walked in, he was the smartest man in the room. He knew about science and nature and all kinds of things. People came from across the known world searching for wisdom from him. But some of the smartest people in our world, I said this when we studied Proverbs, some of the smartest people in our world, the Maryland Voss savants, the 200 plus IQs in our world, some of them do not believe in God. And the psalmist wrote, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. They're unquestionably intelligent, undeniably foolish. I heard Matt Chandler say recently to a crowd of all places at the Southern Baptist Pastors Conference this past summer, he was talking about this brilliant New Testament theologian named D.A. Carson. And he said, hey, you can disagree with him if you want to. But all together, we're not as smart as he is. I mean, all of us together, he's smarter than all of us. Well, Solomon was sort of that way in his world. The poetry in chapter 3 is just an example where he just says, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal. I remember when uh, Bob Newell, our missionary to Greece, preached this so powerfully in the eulogy at Eleanor Pratt's funeral. 
And I was reminded in that beautiful life as he described her with these words of the brilliance of the writer, of Solomon, just recognizing. And then at the end of that saying, uh, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then this, he has set eternity in the hearts of people. Yet we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You know what Solomon said? I am the smartest man in the room, but I cannot figure out God. I, I am very smart, but I am not smarter than the one who made me smart. And there is a certain disillusionment there. In fact, as he describes it at the end of, of uh, verse uh, 17 and 18 and 19, 18 of chapter 1, he says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. You ever feel like that? The more I know about life, the sadder I am. Even Christians are not immune to uh, depression. Recent Christianity Today article is a reminder of this. We're not immune to depression as Christians. We ought, we ought not to be ashamed of depression. Uh, it is a, a, a part of uh, the world we live in, and sometimes we are just deeply sad. Sometimes we are sad for an extended period of time. But if we search for meaning and wisdom alone, if you say, I'm just going to become as smart as I can and that's going to be the meaning of life, I can almost guarantee you, like Solomon, you will be dismayed. You'll be disappointed and disillusioned. We could search for meaning and pleasure. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, he sort of describes that for us. Given endless wealth, we don't have endless wealth, but if you had endless wealth, what would you do? If you were, if you were Bill Gates or, or, or George Soros or... You were one of those people who, if you spent a lot of money every day for the rest of your life, you could never spend it all, what would you do with that wealth? Not many people can handle wealth. I know you may think wealth is a blessing, but Solomon seems to say in its own way it's a curse. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And in chapter 2, it tells us he acquired stuff. Solomon even acquired people. You know how people say, you know, have your people talk to my people? His people really were his people. They belonged to him. He, he acquired men servants and maid servants. He, he acquired livestock like one wealthy person in our city who uh, acquired 200 automobiles. What would you do with 200 automobiles? You think that's a lot. What would you do with 1,000 spouses? This is Solomon's life. Wives and concubines. He's, you know, whatever it is. If you say to him, oh, but there's more of this in life. No, he has been there. He has done that. One wrote a book about our culture and said, we are entertaining ourselves to death. In 2 verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing. And some would say, that's it. But it didn't work for Solomon because pleasure for pleasure's sake, the hedonist life that says, I will enjoy life at all costs. The person who never says no to himself finds that that also is empty. It's not that we don't enjoy our lives with food and drink and gladness. It's that they are not ends in themselves. And have you learned that when we confuse God's gifts with God, that's really called idolatry. Even the good gifts God has given us, if they become more important than God, that becomes for us idolatry. Come back to Tom Brady, who's, who's an icon. Everybody wants to watch him play. Everybody wants to be successful like he is successful. We hope Matt Schaub has that kind of year this year. I don't even know what the final score was today. I was too busy working. But at the end of the day, I would just say this about that, that if you run your life on how your entertainment is going, if you're disappointed by a movie and that, and that grieves you, if 
you know, your football or basketball team loses and you say, that's it, I'm not going to church this week. If, if you, there, I know people who do that, you know, and I'm just saying it can be too important to you. I confessed to Scott Drew, a basketball coach up in Waco, uh, about spring break last year. I said, you're causing me problems because I, I go jogging down the bayou thinking about how many points we need to score and how we need to play defense to beat that team. And it's my every waking, it's, it's idolatry in its own right. And you have, I think, just to confess that and, and remove yourself from that. If you're smiling today more than normal because your football team won yesterday, that probably means it's a little bit too important. If you're still smiling today while you're in church about that, it's probably a little bit too important to you. If you're, if you're frowning today because your team lost yesterday, and that was, I mean, Okay, it's a little bit too important to you. We could search for meaning in entertainment, but it won't satisfy our souls. We could search for meaning in work, he says in, in chapter 2. I know what you're thinking. He better get on his horse. Don't worry, I'm, I'm getting there. Because <laughs> in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, I built great projects. When we were in Israel, we went to Megiddo, and we saw his stables there. And, and uh, we just have to be careful not to be those barn builders like Luke 12, that man in Luke 12 who talks to his own soul and says, I said to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, because your work and your possessions were too important to you. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 20, he realizes somebody else is going to take up his work. You know, Billy Graham went to uh, Washington, D.C., and he walked through the Capitol building, and he was just admiring those statues there. And, and one of the politicians said to him, what do you see that all of these people in this room and these statues have in common. And Billy Graham said, they're all dead. Well, it's true. Nobody gets out of this world alive. And, and so if you live your life for work, he says in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he says, you know, it, it, it leaves you ultimately empty. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? You get nothing for it, he says. I owe, I owe. It's off to work I go. I was thinking about Randy this week, Randy Kilpatrick, and I know, Randy, you don't sing solos a lot, but... I was thinking about when I was a kid, Tennessee Ernie Ford. This would be a good song for you. Not in church probably, but it would be a, a good song for you. And Tennessee Ernie Ford with a voice rather like Randy's. You remember this song, 16 Tons? My dad made me listen to that over and over and over again. My life is probably ruined by that. I'll talk with Roger about it this Wednesday morning. You remember that song? It says, you load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And, and the writer of Ecclesiastes in verse 4 of chapter 4 says, And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. We work because we want to get ahead of of the Joneses. This is back a thousand years before Christ. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. When Tim Keller, as a pastor, went to New York City and he became a pastor in Manhattan, his, uh, his church member said to him, so how's it going? He said, I am working harder than I have ever worked in, in my life. And the church member said to him, what did you expect? Nobody comes to New York to get a life. People come here to get ahead. They come here to work hard. And a friend of mine told me of a pastor who built a huge building and succeeded in his goals. Some would say the largest church in America at that time. 
And as he was walking through the neighborhood, a pastor friend of mine ran into him and said, uh, so what do you do next? And he said, I don't know. I'm thinking, about, I'm, I'm thinking about resigning and just starting over somewhere else. Right after he'd finished all the buildings. Because that was not enough. Look, work is a gift from God. But work is not God. Lester Collins says he used to go home to his father, the pastor, and his dad would say, why don't you stay for a while? He said, well, I've got to get back to Tallawood. And his dad would say to him, Tallawood is not God. Well, it's not. It's a gift from God in my life, a life-giving gift. But it's not God. No work is God. We could search for meaning in wealth, he says in chapters 5 and 6. By the way, wealth is not evil. Paul didn't tell Timothy that money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. And there are wealthy people who do not love money and they should not be categorized in any way. And there are people of very little means who love and lust for money constantly. So what about wealth? Well, we must be sure that we come by it honestly. How did Solomon get his wealth? You know, there's a a glimpse into that in 1 Kings chapter 12 after Solomon dies when Rehoboam is ready to come to the throne and he comes to the people and says, can I rule over you? And they say, here's what you need to do. Your dad worked us to death. Your, your dad overtaxed us and overworked us. And Rehoboam said, I'm gonna, I'll just put it, I'll be a lot tougher on you than my dad. It didn't go so well for him. If you see the poor oppressed, he says in chapter 5, verse 8, that money that the poor are working for, he says, it all goes to the king. You would think the king would be happy about that, but... But Solomon knows better. Whoever loves money never has enough. He says in chapter 5, verse 10, loving it will, will make it unsatisfying. We can love what we can do for others with wealth, but to love wealth in itself is empty. What did Wordsworth say? The world is too much with us. Late and soon, buying and spending, we've given our hearts away a sordid boon. In 6.2, he says, God gives a man wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing. But the irony of it is we die before we can ever enjoy the money that we have acquired. It reminds me of Socrates, who stood up before the people of Athens, another philosopher who said, O citizens of Athens, why do you scrape and turn every stone looking for another, another coin of wealth and pay so little attention to your children to whom one day you must leave it all. And some have enough money to know that it's not the answer. But I'm afraid some of us will never make enough money to figure out what Solomon figured out. It doesn't satisfy. Like Tolstoy's short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? You remember the story where he was offered the chance to acquire as much land as he could walk around in a day? He started out with a modest idea, but then the, the, the more land he saw, the more he liked. And so he started making a sort of a larger circle. He sort of arced out a little bit. He thought, I can surely make it. And as the sun kept moving across the sky, he kept walking. And when he realized he had to make it back to the point where he started, and then all the land in between that he would get, he realized that he had to run faster to get back to that place because the sun was beginning to set. And so he ran faster and faster and faster. And just, just as the sun was setting, he made it back to that spot And he collapsed of exhaustion and died of a heart attack. How much land does a man need, Tolstoy asks. And he answers, about six feet by three feet. That's how much land you need at the end of the day. Solomon had uh, beautiful clothes. We know that because Jesus talks about Solomon in all of his glory. But you know, I had a friend once who was a multi-gazillionaire. There aren't many friends. You'll probably figure out who it was. And he had not bought a new suit in 30 years. 
That just ast- he always looked great, but it just astonished me. And I thought, if you could dress like Solomon, would you? And would that satisfy your soul? Confession, I love, I love to shop. I love clothes. I never buy anything at full price, but I love clothes. It turns out my daughter has the same love. She loves, she, she and I, Melanie's not a big shopper, but Casey and I, big shoppers. We tried on every shoe in her size in a store one night. I kid you not. We only bought like two pairs, but we tried on every one. But even these are not an end in themselves. And listen to Jesus saying, why do you worry about that? Consider the lilies. Here today, gone tomorrow, but Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed as one of these. God will take care of you, but stuff is not an end in itself. So we could try to find meaning in these same things that he did. But we will only ever find meaning in God. And so at the end, in chapter 11, he doesn't tell you just not tr- to try. In chapter 11, he says, cast your bread upon the waters. Chapter 11, verse 1. He's not telling you don't do anything. He's saying do something. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 7, he says, Rem- remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. Back in chapter 2, enjoy good gifts, he says. And at the end of the day, the narrator, so there are two voices in this book, the narrator who's the prologue and the postlogue, and then most of the book is, is the voice of the teacher, Coelette, the philosopher. But at the end, this is what he comes to. After he says, one last time, in case we missed it, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And when he says everything, by that he means everything. Then in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12, this is what he says. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Does that make you feel better? Here's the end of it. Fear God, keep his commandments. See, I, I like that statement. I like the fact that he's focused on God. Here's my, here's my challenge with that. I, I don't know anybody who's ever done that, whoever kept all of God's commandments and feared him. Sometime this week, read Romans chapter 3, where he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody has kept the law, nobody has. And then at the end of that, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God in their eyes. The truth is, the gospel is, the Old Testament points us to this truth that at the end of the day, I can fear God, I can keep his commands, I can do all of my all, I can, I can do more than somebody else, I may be more righteous or better than somebody else, but I can never finally keep all of God's commands. No one except the perfect man has ever been perfectly obedient. And Jesus is the end of our emptiness because he's the only one who by his spirit can fill us with all his fullness remember in Ephesians recently we studied and it says the one who fills everything in every way wants to fill you so just two words to you as we go tonight number one go ahead and say no to yourself go ahead I dare you I double I double dog dare you to say no to yourself and bless the people in your life who tell you no because if everybody all around you is always telling you do whatever you want to do, that's a dangerous place to be. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Nobody was smarter than Solomon. Nobody was richer than Solomon. Nobody had more love in his life, if that's what you call that, than Solomon. No, nobody had more. Nobody had more. Nobody had more. And at the end of the day, nobody had less because nobody had more to lose than Solomon. And he spiritually lost it all. The vacuous words 
of Ecclesiastes became the harbinger for his end of his life because at the end of the day, the man who warned us about wealth and about relationships failed in both areas. Go ahead and say no to yourself. Somebody needs to go ahead. Just say no to yourself. Say no to your friends. Do that sometimes. It's good for them. They won't like it, but do it anyway. And go ahead and say yes to Christ. And then do whatever you do for Him. Because in Him, life is not vain. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Larry and I say this sometimes at gravesides. It seems appropriate tonight as we look at life and wonder what the meaning is. Therefore, this is right after... This is right after Paul explains in 57 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, he explains the resurrection. And then he says, in view of the resurrection, in view of the one who's been there and done that and rose again, these are the words, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our choir sings it. I should have called Randy and sung to him. I would have known the name of the anthem, but I don't. But I think it's to love our God. And there's a line in there. All is empty. All is vain. And then, remember, you remember this anthem? It gets really happy. And it says, Nothing satisfies my soul, gives life meaning, makes us whole. For this reason we were made. For this reason we were made. What? Solomon would say, what? Why were we made? To love our God. To love our God, the reason we live. To love our God, the highest call. And nothing satisfies our souls. Gives life meaning, makes us whole. For this reason we were made. To love our God. And the poet said, only one life, it will soon be passed. And only what is done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life that we have found in you. Would you tonight do for us what we cannot seem to do for ourselves? Would you evacuate the emptiness in our souls so that we are empty of the emptiness because we are filled with the fullness of who you are, God, so that we never mistake the things that you have made for you, so that we never worship stuff or pleasure or entertainment or work or wealth or pleasure because, Lord, we know that these are all good gifts from our good Creator, but they are pity-poor substitutes for you. And nothing can supplant your place in our lives. So let us love you, Lord. Because this is the reason we live. In Jesus' name, amen. My friend Calvin Miller, every time I talk to him, I've got to stop name dropping, but my friend Calvin Miller, every time I talk to him, says to me, Dwayne, do you still love Jesus? Do you still love Jesus? I guess that's my question, Tallowood, tonight. I know you have loved Jesus. I know you can all look back at times when I'm just asking you, do you still love Jesus? Or do you tonight need to return to your first love? Come tonight, maybe for the first time, and say, I realize God loves me, that he sent his only son to die for me. And tonight, I want to tell God I love him. I want to follow him in scriptural baptism by immersion. As God leads you, I welcome you to make that commitment. 
or, or come tonight and unite with this church by promise of letter or statement of your faith. Let's stand together as we sing.